So right message to the right audience in the right place at the right time. That's, that's all there is to it. And it yeah. sounds incredibly simple because it is incredibly simple. We massively overcomplicate it. Hey guys, today I'm honored to have Simon Kemp here with me. He's the global consultant for VR Social, and he also is also the founder of Campios, a marketing consultancy that helps brands to make sense of the future. He has worked with brands such as Unilever, Google, Coca-Cola, Nestle, Johnson and Johnson and DHO. So Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. Good um, and um, great uh, that you are here in Asia and uh, in Singapore, and we are sort of enjoying the same time zones here and uh, <laughs> yeah because I've yes. been speaking to guests around the world and it's a luxury to be talking to someone at 4 p.m. instead of 10 p.m. <laughs> Absolutely and uh, I, I want to get straight to the butter here and uh, one of the things that I heard you talk from other interviews is a concept you call social thinking uh, yeah. which is like a concept that you know get uh, people to talk about the brands uh, that um, can you expand more on that? Yeah, social, social thinking is at the heart of the proposition for We Are Social, yeah. which is an agency that I helped to set up in Asia back in 2011. Um, it's a global brand which has just celebrated its 10th birthday. Um, but social thinking, in essence, is thinking about what it is that people find valuable within a brand to the extent that they then go on to talk about that with other people. So social thinking is understanding brands as something that don't just exist within our own heads and hearts, but they're things that we choose to share with other people as well, whether that's actually sharing physical products or whether it's talking about them and whatever else it may be. So seeing the idea of a brand as a social currency, if you like, something that inspires interactions between us and the people that we care about. Uh, amazing stuff and a lot of times uh, I heard you say that uh, it starts with social listening you know uh, whether it's going onto Instagram and doing hashtags on, uh, research on hashtags or going on Twitter yeah. um, are there any uh, what's the importance of doing like social listening before you plan your content or your strategy so if you're a brand and you want to understand more about what people care about and how you relate to their world, it's really important to actually do some research into what those things are. So I think a lot of brands, when they're building their strategies, they spend a lot of time focused on what it is that they want to achieve. But in reality, if you're going to succeed as a brand, you've got to find the sweet spot between what it is that you want on one side. If you imagine a Venn diagram with two circles, yeah, I draw yeah. this for you. <laughs> so on one side, you've got what the brand wants. And on the other side, you've got what the audience wants. And in the little magic bit in the middle of that, where you've got what both sides want, that is where yeah. you get best. And I think the danger is that a lot of times brands have very little understanding, if any understanding at all, of what it is that their audiences and their consumers actually want or what they care about or what matters in their world. So social listening is a really straightforward way of getting started. And like you said, one of the easy ways to do that, if you've not got any sophisticated tools, if you don't have even a lot of time, yeah. something that I do quite regularly is just to go into Instagram, look for a very generic hashtag. So suppose I'm Starbucks, I would search for hashtag coffee. Yeah. And you just look through the content because the thing that's interesting about Instagram, if somebody takes time out of their life to snap a picture, upload it to Instagram, and then put a hashtag on it with particular topics, 
it matters to them enough that they've taken time out of their lives to do that. So if it matters to them to share it, it probably has value to them. And that is a really interesting insight from a brand perspective. Now, it doesn't give you the answers. What it does do is it gives you better questions that help you to identify higher value activities that you can do. But until you spend time researching and listening to what your audience cares about, you're just going to be guessing what they might want. So yeah, it, it's an awful lot easier to spend that time listening to them and hearing what they've got to say directly than it is trying to guess. Yeah. Um, I used to work for uh, an American brand called uh, Meet Johnson, which is like, a yep. and um, I used to be part of, I was leading the social listening project here in, in Asia and the, the headquarters uh, was in Kuala Lumpur because the, the main market is still Malaysia because for some reason, Singapore's birth rates are not increasing anytime. But, <laughs> uh-huh. but, but refined, um, I used the social listening tool and uh, from the social listening tool, uh, that's how we found out that insight that a lot of Singaporean moms actually got their product across the border in JB. <laughs> that's what we went into forums and to blogs to find, uh, you know, what moms were talking about. And it was very interesting and you plan out and you understand the concerns that because like milk powder is a very sensitive product goes down to the quality we found out the concerns and also the behavior of like moms in general and uh, to add to what you're saying uh, one of the tools that i sometimes use is quora uh, especially for mm. business is to understand the questions that people have uh, when it comes to a brand or a certain issue yeah uh, yeah I think questions are a really good place to start. So this is true whether you're a B2C company like Mead Johnson or even if you're a B2B company. The more that people have questions that they're asking directly, the more you know that it matters to them. And I think whether it's something as straightforward as looking at things that people post to Twitter or Quora or whether it's doing something a little bit deeper and diving into those sort of in-depth forums. I mean, you mentioned social listening. So one of the bits of work that I did a few years ago was analyzing social media conversations about schizophrenia. So an incredibly deep, you know, very complex subject. And at the time, the brands that we were talking to didn't necessarily think that social media would be an appropriate place to be analyzing conversations around you know, a, a condition like schizophrenia. And yet we found some incredibly rich insights into the reasons why people weren't adhering to their medication sort of schedules. And um, you know, so that a lot of people think that social listening can be a little bit flippant. You know, I said, go into Instagram and look at hashtags and that might yeah. sound a little bit like it's very high level, but yeah. at the same time, you can dig incredibly deeply into some very important topics. And um, I think it's probably a good time to bring up another slightly sensitive topic at the moment here as well. I mean, we've had an awful lot of stuff in the news recently about fake news and about meddling in elections around the yeah. world. And a lot of that has been based on a fairly sophisticated form of social listening as well. Obviously, there's a lot of social talking at the other side yeah. of that from various parties that either distribute fake news or whatever else. But I think what's really interesting is that much of that activity has been driven by a fairly sophisticated piece of data collection analysis and then interpretation it's unfortunately being used for some very emotive subjects and yeah i'm not going to necessarily say that i approve of what it's being used for but if you look at things like cambridge analytica i mean we're we're talking about some incredibly sophisticated construction of models using data here and sadly it wasn't being used necessarily for the, the benefit of the audience it was being used for 
the benefit of some unscrupulous players. But you know, the possibility clearly exists. Yeah. If we have ways of collecting this data and then structuring it and then analyzing it so that we can understand what people care about, the possibility does lie there for us to be adding a lot more value as brands. And yeah. I think that's why I, I get very excited about this. The more that I know what the audiences that I want to engage care about and what matters to them, the greater the chances are that I can deliver that to them. So whether it's you doing things like going into Quora and reading up about what mums in Singapore care about and why they're going across the border, I'm assuming that's going to be because they're that Singaporean concept of tattoo must get the best possible deal. Yeah. Um, so they're going across the border to get cheaper versions of the yeah. same product. Yeah. Right the way through to what is it that the electorate in the next European country to be messed with on an electoral basis. You can collect that data and you can model it and you can interpret it. It's still yeah. going to come down to how sophisticated your modeling skills are. Yeah. I mean, I think at the same time, it's, um, yeah, it, it's a hugely valuable skill, which unfortunately is still very underrated. My, my take on the Cambridge Analytica, we're talking about something controversial here, is they combine psychographic data, for example, with your Facebook ID, so that they can yeah. show you very relevant ads. But when people ask me about that, I said, whoa, that's outrageous. How could like, people be doing that? I said, it's not an issue of the methodology. It's a great methodology. Like McDonald's could do it and give you like a burger that suits your psychographic uh, profile. But no one is doing it. But what they got, they, they use that data and use it against people's permission for you know, their own users or whatever. But the methodology is completely... Uh, amazing and I was like anyone could have used it but unfortunately it was like for political purposes <laughs> yeah and I think that's that's the weird bit isn't it if it had yeah. been used to add value to me as the audience I would yeah. probably have had a, a slightly different reaction so instead of showing me all of these useless adverts that have very little relevance to what I care about but they've been shown to me just because I am a middle-aged white guy living in a certain particular location it's like really is that the best you can do for targeting yeah. I would be quite happy if there were brands that realized that although I am the age I am inside here and inside here I'm a lot younger you know it's yeah. kind of, <laughs> I, I just still dream of being an 18 year old kid who wanted to be a DJ and I sort of yeah. got distracted in a business person but there are hopes and dreams that define the inner me and if a brand can understand those it's going to trigger that much more sort of expensive side of my behavior, whether it's me. You know, the, 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 sort of the classic example of this is that the, the majority of Harley-Davidson motorcycles are sold to men in their 50s who are having a sort of post-midlife crisis and they're sort of yeah. desperate to recapture some of their youth. And I think there's an awful lot of opportunity for brands to understand that the slightly more inner behaviors that guide what we do rather than the demographics that so much advertising targeting is based on. So yeah, whether it's listening to what people are saying specifically or whether it's using a variety of that data to understand more about my motivations, I think we're, we're squandering an awful lot of opportunity as marketers yeah. by not taking advantage of the tools and the data we've got at our disposal. Well, one, one of the things that you say a lot is that brands should be part of the consumer's conversation, uh, which is I completely agree. When, when I work on brands, uh, just to give you a, a, a example, for the past three years, I was working on like Southeast Asia's biggest spa brand uh, as the digital marketing. So um, I was always part of people's conversations, going in and engaging with people in certain locations. Uh, I found that very useful for getting like customers. And, but what I find is um, sometimes it's a challenge for marketers to get brands part of people's conversations. Uh, but the best way is to create an amazing product. So if you have an amazing product, directly people talk about it. But sometimes it's a challenge. Uh, like, for example, if you're, I don't want to name brands, but 
if you are working for a fast food brand, so you, you don't want to go into health topics or sports and, and get people talking about the brand, it's a challenge. But the best way, especially for millennials, uh, when, you, when millennials talk about brands, it's because it's really an amazing product. Um, mm. uh, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think a lot of the time brands want to be the conversation. So they yeah. want people to talk about them. And I think <laughs> this is one of the great mistakes of marketers is that they're, they're incredibly egocentric and selfish. So most brands behave like, you know, when you, you've got a newborn baby, right? And yeah. in the first couple of years of its life, probably after about 18 months, two years old, the baby believes that the world revolves around them. So their parents basically <laughs> drop everything, the slightest noise that the baby makes. And then maybe the, the baby starts at kindergarten or nursery school and realizes that other people exist and maybe the world doesn't revolve around them after all. And I think that an awful lot of brands are only just arriving at that stage now they suddenly realize that the world is not just about them sadly the vast majority of brands still believe that the world is about them so they believe that social media engagement is basically they are the 18 month old baby and the world is their parents that will drop everything for them this is why most brands completely fall flat because the people that they're screaming for are not their parents and it's like walking down a supermarket aisle and seeing somebody else's kid screaming it's like thank goodness that's not mine i'll just leave that there and move away and you know that, that's the way that we behave with most brands i don't want to listen to you screaming at me and telling me how amazing you are because i'm not interested so i think it's this idea of needing to understand what's valuable to the people that you care about so that you can then add value to that world and i think you know, it's that bit of being part of their conversations instead of being the conversation itself. And I think you, you, you've sort of got different stages in marketing and it's, it's changing quite rapidly, mainly because we've got new opportunities to connect with our audiences. So, so the old model is broadcast models. You've got top-down approach, you've got a brand here and it talks at people. And yeah. that was isn't either we listened or we didn't as audiences. Then for the last sort of 20 odd years since the advent of the internet, as a marketing tool in the mid 90s, I suppose, we, we sort of got to interactive where the brand gives me a series of options on its website and I choose which ones of those I engage with. So it was a little bit less of the top down and it became a bit more kind of backwards and forwards. The brands learned what was successful on their website and then they maybe made more of what succeeded and less of what didn't. But now we've got to the really interesting situation with social media where the conversations are taking place with or without the brand. They always did, but it was difficult for brands to sort of realize that because yeah. that wasn't part of the channel mix that we had. Whereas now, you, if you imagine a circle, so instead of this, you know, you've got the top-down approach. I'm trying to yeah. draw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm visual. I have what you're trying to say, yeah. I need to do that Moz thing where he draws stuff on a whiteboard while he talks. Yeah. Well, you had this like one to many and you've got all the nodes down here. You're now in a situation where you've got all the nodes as the audience and then the brand is just one node in that circle. So yeah. basically the brand is just one part of an ongoing conversation about a particular topic. Now the brand may be adding a particularly valuable piece of that conversation. It may even be that the conversation will sort of focuses a lot on what the brand does. So brands like Apple a lot of the time the conversation is about Apple, but broadly it's about people's lives and where Apple fits into that as well. And I think that's the bit that Apple's an extreme case, which is why it's dangerous to use as a case study. If you come back to sort of a day-to-day -day brand, like a shampoo brand, for example, yeah. it's very, very rare that people care about shampoo. People care a great deal about having beautiful hair, yeah. whether it's because you know, they're, they're, they want to be 
glamorous, whether it's because they're worried about dandruff, all the this is where I start to get nervous and realize I'm wearing a black t-shirt. But you know, you, you've got all the reasons why we buy shampoo brands, but we're, we're less interested in the product and we're only really interested in the benefit. Yeah. And I think it's that continuum of understanding that almost everything will have some form of conversation around the topics that are related to that brand but not many brands will be the topic of conversation themselves. And I think it, yeah. it's understanding where your brand and where your industry, if you like, where your sort of category sits within that continuum. Because if there was no conversation around any of it, the chances are the category and the brand wouldn't exist for very long anyway. So know where you fit in people's lives, which it comes back to that point you were talking about before, that whole idea of the, the social listening. Understand where you fit, understand what conversations exist without you, yeah. And then identify where you can add value to that conversation as a brand without trying to monopolize the conversation. And I think that's the main thing that worries me whenever I speak to marketers. And this is, this is common all around the world. They want the conversation to be about them. It's like, no, just, just pause there. Add value to existing conversations and people will welcome you a lot more with open arms and it'll be a lot more successful. Great stuff, Simon. Great stuff. And um, one of, one of the... Um examples that I heard recently you gave in the talk. Uh, sorry, one of the th videos I watched recently, you said um, ideas for content creation is to give education, uh, like what you've been doing on your personal brand. And I, I mm. think there's a lack of it uh, when it comes to massive brands doing that. And in one of your interviews, you gave an example of a washing detergent where, you know, like a washing detergent can talk about how white they can make your clothes, but they can actually solve a problem. They can come out with a guidebook, how to how to manage your clothes, like this is a cotton, how you should wash cotton, like people like those sort of information and, or, or like I could talk about a washing detergent at the sink and I could tell people, oh, it's like cheap and it, it can wash 99% of stains, but I can yeah. give you a guidebook on how to manage your sink and how to keep the bacteria off, like you should change your sponge every three months because you keep the bacteria off, you should wash this type of place this way, but I seem to see a lack of like, you know, like what you say, uh, education from brands, which actually would add value to so many people. Yeah, so I think it's, it's important to stress that education should only be one part of a mix of activities yeah. that you do. Yeah. But where you do have an opportunity to, to educate and inspire and inform people, then you know, you're adding value directly to them. And that's something that an awful lot of people look out for. Yeah. So, you know, sure enough, entertainment and basic information are still an important part of your content mix. But yeah. let's, use, let's use the laundry detergent. So washing of clothes as an example. And in fact, there's, there are many brands around the world that have done this already. So I'm trying to remember exactly which one it is. I might confuse myself. <laughs> it's not the major ones. Slight concern. But Tide, actually, I think in the US had an app that was all about how to remove certain, and I think they had 300 common stains and how to remove them. That was a fantastic piece of activity. The thing is that, yeah. you know, there's only so many of those stains. I mean, I'm, I'm going to jinx myself here and I'll spend the rest of the day staining my clothes. But let's face it. I mean, you've probably got two or yeah. three types of stains that you regularly get on your clothes, depending on where you live. So yeah. if you're a mechanic, you're going to end up with oil on your clothes. If you are Scottish like me and you drink a lot of wine, then you're going to have red wine stains. You know, the series of stains that are quite common. And I think yeah. once you've dealt with it, once you've dealt with it. So this is not something that you need to continuously pump out and it's definitely not the sort of thing you'd want to have as part of a TV ad but yeah. you know, basic things like that where you're educating me on things that matter to me that has value but at the same time you can't do that all the time so I think yeah. there's a careful balance to strike there but broadly speaking there are four ways that brands can kind of add value to my world something in, 
that is just basic information. So telling me that you have a sale on. Yeah. I care about sales because I want to get a good deal. So that's a good start. Um, just telling me what your shop opening hours are. That's another really good sort of basic piece of information. So that should form part of your overall mix. You've then got entertainment, which seems to form a really sort of disproportionately large part of most brands' marketing mixes. So, you know, I'm a sort of, if you look at the, what Tide did during the Super Bowl, I think it was this year where every ad is a Tide ad. I mean, they disproportionately invested in entertainment. Let's face it, there's only so many things that you can talk about with laundry detergent before people don't pay attention anymore. So the entertainment, I get why that's a yeah. big part. Of it. But again, it should only be one part of that quadrant yeah. mix of different things. Then you've got inspiration and education. And those two things are often sort of interchangeable yeah. depending on what it is yeah. that you do. But the example that I always give here for inspiration is uh, I love to make music in my spare time. I'm a very nerdy electronic musician. And I'm always trying to learn about the latest gadgets and the latest tricks and techniques of how to make better music. And there are literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of videos on the internet teaching me how to do clever things. And, you know, I'll spend my weekend watching those. And as a regular sort of consequence of watching those videos, I'll buy bits of kit, whether it's a piece of software, whether it's a keyboard yeah. controller, because it's inspired me to be able to do things that I care about. Now, if it just had an advert saying, new piece of kit that does stuff, I would have ignored it. But because it's helping me to do the things that I care about, I pay attention, I'm emotionally involved. Once I'm emotionally involved, there's a much greater chance that my wallet comes out and money is exchanged. And then, you know, the education piece is sort of the, the most extreme end of that. So sometimes inspiration is simply a case of saying, you can do this, look, I've done it. And I go, wow, I want to learn how to do that. And then I go and find the education. So yeah. across those four different things, if you are you know, if you're a brand in almost any category, you want to be trying to balance those four different sort of approaches to delivering audience value. But it's always that. It's the audience value that you want to seek first. Yeah. When, you were, when you were a teenager and you, sort of, you were learning about how to be, maybe it was younger than that, but you were learning how to find your place in society and you were saying, what makes somebody popular? One of the things that always comes top in what makes a person popular is generosity. Yeah. And we know this because the reason, it's ironic, the reason that generosity is so successful as an approach is because most people are selfish. Right? So we're, we like generous people because it means we get more stuff for free. But the good thing is that by being generous, we form goodwill with other people that makes them more predisposed to then sort of spend more time or money with us as a brand. So by being generous in the first place, by making that first move and being sociable as a brand, hence social thinking, we're more likely to build those strong sort of relationships and bonds and goodwill with people such that they are more likely to come back and find us when they need something. So you may not be the very best in your category, but if you've built that goodwill, then people are more likely to turn to you first. And a lot of the time, the first one we see is the one that we want. And if there's nothing particularly standing in the way, we'll go for that. We won't do a lot more research. Yeah, amazing. Um, another thing that I want to get your thoughts on this is that I say that uh, it's the golden age for small businesses. Uh, because you're spying a lot of small brands, whether it's a house brand. Basically, with um, social media advertising and a lot of things, it's sort of flattened out like a big brand like Pepsi uh, or like a small household. So that would be spending the same amount of money for cost per ad. Um, so, and also when it comes to small businesses, um, it's easier for a small business to build a relationship or social interaction with, with, uh, with the audience rather than a big brand who has like multiple levels of CEOs like a chief marketing officer like sitting behind a desk. So 
it's sort of the golden age of like small entrepreneurs and small brands. And uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so let's look at, there's two bits that's really interesting in what you just said. So you said it's the golden age of small businesses. Now, what small businesses are doing today is no different to what they've always done before, but they've now got a platform in social media that allows them to scale yeah. and you know, talk to audiences everywhere. So once upon a time, small businesses were kind of restricted to the neighborhood, the geographies, right? Yeah. Whereas now it's very easy for me to sell something to somebody in South America even though I'm sitting in Singapore, you know, I have conversations with people all around the world. And you know, I'm a business of one and a half people. So my wife and I run Kepios as a business and she's I, not sort of full time on the business. So one and a half of us. Yeah. And we then managed to reach out to the entire world from our small sort of home office in Singapore, which is amazing. But if you flip that, right, here's the interesting thing. The reason that small businesses usually have an advantage in situations where they're sort of growing their businesses is that they're able to dedicate more resource to engaging with their customers. So if you think back to the, the olden days of the village shop, right? So, you know, yeah. let's think back sort of two, 300 years where, not even, even 100 years ago, you know, you, you would go to the village store, they would know you and your family, they would be able to make recommendations because they knew you as an individual. That got lost in the world of mass marketing in the supermarket. You know, you might have known the person that was at the checkout and yeah. you'd say hello, but by that time you'd already got all of your groceries and it was a bit late for them to influence you except for that yeah. bar of chocolate right next to the checkout, right? But the interesting thing is that with the advent of things like social media, big businesses can scale the other direction so they can bring more of those one-to-one -one conversations back into their marketing. The difference is that they, they become so hung up on reaching as many people as possible with exactly the same message because they sort of got indoctrinated with this mass media efficiency model and they've forgotten that efficiency and effectiveness are two sort of sides of a balance. So yeah. they've gone really, really heavily on efficiency and they've lost effectiveness as a result. And the reality is that things like social media allow us to bring that balance back. We can deliver effective one-to-one -one communications, but at much greater scale. And other people can be part of those conversations if they choose to be as well. So yes, it is definitely a golden age for small businesses that want to expand and to broaden their geographic and economic reach. But at the same time, exactly the same benefits could play for big businesses if they took that sort of small business mentality. And I'm, you know, this is not about those wanky terms like agility and all, just forget all of this hype. This yeah. is just basic human psychology. Your customers always want to feel valued. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to recognize that they have motivations, needs, and desires, and that you want to satisfy those by giving them what they care about. And one of the simplest ways of doing that is having a conversation with them. So one of, the, one of the things I keep talking about recently is banks. What, what fascinates me is that banks think that things like Facebook bots are a way of replacing call centers. I, no, absolutely not. Do not replace, because the reason I phone my bank is not just to get something fixed. That's a resolution which I need, but I'm kind of, I'm fairly confident that I'm gonna get resolution of a problem. What I really want is recognition. What I want is my bank or somebody at my bank to say, I'm sorry, we messed up. 
we recognize that you've suffered as a result of this. And, you know, I, I had a conversation with uh, somebody at my business bank the other day. They had added a dollar charge onto a transaction that I'd made without any reason for it. Now, it's a dollar. I'm obviously not the sort of person that needs to sort of get angsty about a dollar, but it was the, the challenge of why, why, why have you added this dollar? I just got angry about it. It's like, you can't just be adding fees to my transactions without any just cause. So I phoned them up and the person that I was speaking to I, I could tell that this person was sort of thinking, why is he getting angsty about a dollar? And it's like, it's not the dollar, it's the principle. And then, you know, I got so angry, it was eventually like, I need to speak to your supervisor, I need somebody to recognize that I'm upset. And when somebody phoned back and went, we're really sorry, I was like, that's all I needed. All you had to do, it cost you so much money to deal with me. And all you had to do was say, I'm sorry, we didn't need to do that. And I think there's a lot of brands that miss this. They've sort of gone into the whole, let's keep on pumping efficiency. Let's, yeah. let's get bots to do it or whatever else. No. Yes, there are things like when I want to know your opening hours, get a bot to do that. That's great. But when there is any form of empathy involved, yeah. there is the human to human connection that is going to add a disproportionate value, which is worth the investment longer term. So you've got companies like Zappos, which have become famous for the human to human touch when it comes to customer service or whatever else. Most businesses miss that because they're looking for efficiencies and economies of scale. You know, those matter. They're really important. And the internet ironically delivers those better than any other kind of technology ever has. But because of that, and because they're available to anybody now, whether it's a small or a big business, the competitive advantage is now the empathy that only a human so far can deliver. AI might get to the stage where it's empathetic as well. Something I talked about recently, it's coming. Yeah. Empathy and the learned response. So sooner or later, we'll get there. But it's a lot further off. And therefore, in the short yeah. term, empathy is a competitive advantage. I want that as a massive, like, you know, I want big brands to have that on their walls at marketing conferences because they need to remember it's all about people. That was a bit uh, of a rant there. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm great. I love, I love the rant because it shows, shows like your thought process and like what, what you're thinking about. So I just want to rant on. So I'll give you another question related to that. Because recently, uh, uh, I did a LinkedIn video, okay? So my barber asked me for advice on Facebook. Hey, Bob, you've been doing Facebook marketing and business advice. I said, I give. Uh, and uh, how much do you cost? I said, you can't afford me. But here's some advice. I said, go to your Instagram location tag and engage with the people in the community. Like, comment on their photos, and they'll show up at the shop. Secondly, look at who has the best reach in the community. Like somebody of 20,000 followers, 10,000 followers, get them to your shop. And then... And then thirdly, do Instagram advertising and uh, set those to our Facebook ad thing. But anyway, but I can't do that for a bigger brand. Like you can't go to a big F FMCG, like fast moving brand. And, and I sort of have the thought like that big, how do big brands find their voice again um, in, in the social world? Like how do they become more humanized um, to interact with people? Yeah, so this, this is a big challenge and it's one that, every big brand faces is once you yeah. get to a certain size, then you lose that sort of understanding of exactly who it is that you're dealing with. But I think that that's part of the problem. So you, you've got, you've got two, I suppose, paths at the moment yeah. in digital marketing. On the one side, you've got the PNG and Unilever marketing leaders telling us that targeting hasn't delivered them the benefits that they expected and they're going back to mass marketing. Some of this relates to the sort of the stuff that was in Byron Sharp's How Brands Grow book, which is an absolutely essential read for any marketer out there. If you've not read it, you've got to go out and read it right now. So plug and uh, Byron, I'll take my commission on those extra sales. Thanks very much. Uh -huh. um, but what's really interesting is that they've, they've, a lot of people have completely misinterpreted what the advice 
that is coming out of that kind of book is and also what the results of their activities have been because a lot of what's going and this is this is you know this is a sweeping generalization but based on what i'm seeing there is there is a lot of stuff that we're doing wrong as an industry so you've got big brands that are sort of micro targeting individuals based on like loads and loads of demographics and behavioral activities that actually have very little to do with the motivations behind why we buy things. So, you know, I've got, I've targeted a 33 year old lady living in Surabaya who is interested in, I don't know, Lady Gaga and also in chilies. And I've decided that I need to show her a particular kind of detergent ad, whereas her next door neighbor who is actually be quite a similar person i need to do a completely different ad because x and it's like you're missing the very basic obvious human elements of this the way that the bits and bytes of the internet combine to tell us who somebody fits within a digital profile isn't necessarily going to tell you what it is that motivates them on an emotional and a psychological basis yeah. it's that bit that we've got wrong we're targeting based on bits and bytes instead of what actually happens inside the person's psyche. So I think, you know, from that perspective, we, we, we've got to come back and say, you know, for your, for your barber sort of um, advice there, find people in your local community, that's absolutely fantastic. If you're Dove or if you're Pantene or- You can't you know, do that, right? Yeah. Right, well, you can, but it, it's, it's prohibitive. You know, it's really difficult for you to do that on a way that makes sense because, well, let's face it, if I go to one supermarket in Singapore versus a supermarket in London versus a supermarket in, I don't know, San Francisco. They're not dramatically different when I get to the detergent aisle. You know, it's like the same, the brands yeah. might have a slightly different name, but the logo's the same and essentially the ingredients are the same. And it doesn't really matter whether I'm targeting people around the location of that supermarket. The brand is essentially the same thing. So you've got to find a different way of sort of going about building that relevance, but it's that bit that's important. So you're, your, sort of, your advice to the barber is that because the fact that you need to go into a barber shop to get the benefit of that barber, there is a local relevance. And I think it's the relevance bit there is a geographic location, right? Yeah. What any brand is looking for is the relevance that they have in somebody's world and somebody's life. Sometimes wow. that's physical. Sometimes it's psychological. There's all sorts of different ways that a brand can find its relevance. And I think that's the bit that we keep missing. We sort of get distracted by these nonsense things like we'll chase, we'll chase purpose. Yeah. The purpose is really important, but the, the trouble is it, it's a very, for most brands, it becomes this very self-masturbatory moment of, oh, this is our purpose. And it's like nobody actually yeah. cares what yeah. your purpose is. Until it really, nobody cares until they think that you care about them. And then yeah. that's the bit is, you telling me your purpose has zero relevance to me until you make that about me. As soon yeah. as we've got something that we care about in common, then that purpose has meaning in my life. So, you know, brands that are all about, so one of the first ever examples I remember of this is when there was the whole sort of scandal around tuna that wasn't dolphin friendly. And then suddenly it's like, this tuna brand is dolphin friendly. And I remember insisting that my mum only buy dolphin friendly tuna. I was probably a little bit naive as a kid. There's all sorts of other terrible things that go on in the world of tuna fishing. But nonetheless, you, know, you, you suddenly had a cause that people care about. And, the, you know, it doesn't just have to be a worthy cause. There can be sort of slightly flippant causes out there as well you look at so this isn't a flippant example but you look at why nike succeeds as a brand it's because it it talks about me being an athlete a lot of sports brands talk about the athletes that i admire but what nike does really well is it brings it back to me so it organizes a 10k run in my yeah. city that i can join up and take part in or it organizes all sorts of different activities that are for me 
as you know, when I say me as an athlete, I'm obviously not an athlete, but as Nike says, if you have a body, you're an athlete. So that's what's really clever about the brands that we love to come back to again and again as case studies are the ones that have understood our world and have found the relevance in it. So I I could go on with that rant all day, but come back to that one essential thing, relevance. Well, that's the keyword. Yeah. yeah, that's great. This is not new, right? I mean, these are things that marketers have been talking about for years. And I think it's, if you go back to the, sort of the village shop analogy, what those local merchants did so well was that they had relevance. They wouldn't just say, buy this because it's on special offer. They go, buy this particular brand of orange juice because little Johnny likes things with, you know, orange pulp. Yeah. Because he knew little Johnny, because little Johnny came into the shop and he says, I want with pulp. You know, so you oh. have context and relevance amazing well it's not it's not rocket science is it yeah 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 like you should buy this you have a beautiful daughter with hair and uh, just buy this dove shampoo <laughs> like little, you know, i think yeah. it's that that same story of is it because is, are you buying it for beauty are you buying it for confidence are you buying it for less fuss i mean you know there's a yeah. reason i keep my hair short I just, I, I'm not really that interested in spending hours every morning drying yeah. it and styling it. I'm just not a fashion kind of guy, as you can tell. So you know, there's, there's different benefits. And I think this is, this comes back to that point I was going to try and make about targeting before I forgot. Targeting based on motivations, interests, desires, all the, the classic Kotler stuff is relevant. Understanding what it is that people seek wow. is important. And that doesn't mean that you, you stop and you ignore other people. It just means that you understand that some people buy shampoo for beauty. Some people buy shampoo for simplicity. Some people buy it because it's eco-friendly. You've got different kinds of motivations. Understand what they are. Use your social listening. Make that reference back to what we talked about earlier. Understand those motivations and create slightly different variations on your messaging to cater to those different interests. The product may be the same, but just give different messages to different motivations because not everybody cares about the same stuff. Great stuff. Um, I want to continue this rant about big brands. And I'm going to show you another ball. So uh, you talk about targeting and mass media. So I, I, I've met a lot of marketers, which I am not. Uh, a lot of marketers who work for startups, and they call, them, call themselves growth hackers. And sometimes it's an exaggerated term, 300% revenue growth. Yeah, it's exaggerated. It. I'll have like a, a, a LinkedIn video talking shit about it. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, but I understand the methodology. They go into the right medium or right channel and try to get the maximum uh, results, lead generation or results from it. And if that, this channel doesn't work, they put all their maximum effort to another channel. Uh, but when it comes to media planning for like the big brands, <laughs> they still go, they, they do everything. And they still, like you said, go into the mass media, which is like TV and uh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, because I've not worked with big brands recently, do you understand like the psychology behind that? Of why they still go into mass media? Yeah, yeah. 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 So there, there's there's an awful lot of very bizarre hangovers from <laughs> sort of the overall business process. So yeah. one of the reasons why TV advertising is still really important is if you look at big supermarkets, right? So let, let's suppose we're talking about a soup soup category, right? Canned soup. Yeah. The way that you get the most prominent shelf position in a lot of supermarkets, it's still because you've got national TV support. So the buyer for the soup category at Carrefour or cold storage or Walmart, whatever it may be, may still be an old school sort of buyer who's been there for 20, 30 years. And the way that they sort of organize the the shelving 
organization is based on whether you've got TV advertising running right now. Ironically, everybody knows that that model is outdated and yet you've got to change so many things to flip that model that it's just like the amount of decision-making that gets made in front of the shelf is so important that I don't care whether anybody even sees my TV advertising because if I need that TV advertising to get that particular shelf slot, that investment is worth it. So even if nobody even sees that ad on TV, oh, an yeah. investment that delivers a benefit. Now, this is what's crazy, right? Because this is money that is absolutely being used for the wrong things because the supermarket can do things differently. The brand can do things differently. And ultimately, the consumer would prefer just to get like five cents off the tin, right? Yeah. I mean, it just yeah. makes more sense the way. So there's all sorts of different reasons why. And you know, don't, don't get me wrong either. There's an awful lot of brands. So a really good example of this is like... Um, Beauty products, well, sort of everyday beauty products, personal care products that are targeted to teenage men, right? This is one of the dirty secrets of the the category. So let's suppose that I'm talking about body wash for teenage boys, right? It's being marketed to those teenage boys so that the brand is desirable, but in reality, their mum buys it when they're at the supermarket. And therefore, ironically, the TV advertising that is being shown while the mum is watching, and I know that's an incredible sort of gender inappropriate bias story, but let's just go with this because it's, yeah, this is how the planners are thinking about this and that's why it's broken. So you've got the mother that's watching her shows, primetime TV still because she's still a TV kind of person. And she sees these ads and she thinks, oh, that's relevant to the world that my son lives in. She's at the supermarket, she sees it and she buys it, right? So that is actually a legitimate use of budget. Now, whether or not it's what the average marketing consultant would be thinking about when they're making recommendations of this, that's the problem is that we, we get distracted by advertising is created by an advertising agency that only looks at advertising. Whereas an awful lot of the decisions that get made for mass brands, especially in FMCG categories, need to be the full four Ps. So we're looking at distribution strategy is probably the most important element because if, if you've got huge amounts of TV advertising but the product isn't available all of that advertising is completely wasted, right? So front of shelf, right place, right time. All you need is to trigger recall at the right moment in front of the shelf and job done. So this whole idea of efficient and effective marketing is not efficient and effective advertising as a standalone activity. We've got to take that much broader kind of view of the end-to-end process, not just for the consumer, but also for the marketing team that we're trying to help. And I think, you know, you speak to the average marketing director and they get so frustrated because their advertising agency comes back with all these great ideas of all these activities that they could do. But immediately after they've had the meeting with the advertising agency, that marketing manager has to go and deal with an out of stock issue or they've got to, you know, the advertising agency comes up with this great idea about how to change packaging, but they fail to realize that in order to change the packaging, they would have to change the entire factory of how to make these products. It's like, it's a great idea, but it's fundamentally flawed by practicalities. And the whole thing about a mass brand is it's built on efficiencies and economies of scale. So there's ideas and then there are practical ideas. And, you know, we've got to get better as supporting the marketer in their overall world. That doesn't mean that we have to become experts in supply chain if we're in advertising, but we at least have to understand the the, the marketer's reality. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's very easy for us to, you know, I do this regularly, so I'm, I'm sort of, being hypocritical against myself even here, but it's very easy to get caught up in the perfection of how to deliver the, the ideal Facebook strategy. But Facebook is the, the tiny, tiny part of a big, big overall mix of how to deliver effective marketing, which includes is the price right? You know, so yeah. it's basic as that. 
So let's not get distracted. You know, marketing and brands are a collection of everything that we do over time. And if we're going to do this properly, we need to see that as a holistic kind of model and not just these standalone activities. Being on social media is not going to solve all your problems. I think this is one of those things that people need to remember. No, the number of of marketers that come to me and say, what should I be doing on Facebook? It's like, what what problem are you trying to fix? And then there's like blank look of, just tell me what I should be doing on Facebook. And it's like, you don't go into the doctor and say, give me medicine and expect them to know exactly what's wrong with you and know how to diagnose it and then cure you. You've got to talk about symptoms. You've got to address specific problems, right? So marketers that are listening to this, number one thing, know what the problem you're trying to fix is and then go to somebody that can help fix that problem. Don't take a problem that is a distribution problem and go and speak to your ad agency about it unless the ad agency really can help you with distribution. So, sorry, that, that was another sort of deviated rant into lots of different things. But yeah, yeah it, it comes back to that efficiency and effectiveness thing. So efficiency is, sorry, let, let me start that again. Effectiveness is doing the right thing and efficiency is doing those things right. Yeah. Effectiveness is place to start. So get the best possible piece of communication, the best possible distribution strategy. Spend time massively upfront identifying the thing that's going to give you disproportionate return. So this is your growth hacking. And I'm never yeah. going to say that phrase again, but basically <laughs> the analogy here right, is if you think about a bank, if you go into the bank and the bank gives you a choice of three different savings account, one gives you 10% interest, one gives you 5% and one gives you 1% and you've got hundred dollars to invest. What are you going to do? You're going to put everything in the 10% account because you'd be crazy to spread it across anything else. And yet that's what we do as marketers. We try and spread our activities across all these different things yeah. without looking at what's the one that's going to give me the maximum return on my investment, hence the ROI conversation, right? So identify what that greatest vehicle for ROI is. And then you move into the efficiency bit. How do I do that better and better? So I need to invest less and less and less to get the same levels of returns. Start with effectiveness and then improve it through better efficiency. Don't start with better efficiency and then try and work out how to make it effective because you're often starting suboptimally there. So you've got maybe a perfect media strategy but if you can't deliver the messaging that matters to your audience, that media strategy is pointless. Now, having said that, you can't have great creative and nowhere to deliver it. So again, it's a balancing act of efficiency and effectiveness. But yeah, let's not say growth hacking again, but start with this polished bit of effectiveness and then growth hack that. Yeah. Another one. I'm, I'm just going on a rant this afternoon. Sorry, Bob. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I, I love it. I love it. That's why I got you on the call because I love your chat with Graham and I, I figured like I should get you and like the LinkedIn needs to hear about this. Like instead of LinkedIn like, needs more rants. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's move on to more of what you've done recently. Like you recently released the Global Digital Snapshot, which was amazing. I, tweet, I tweeted about it, shared it on LinkedIn. Thank you. Uh, and, and also, uh, and um, one one of the things that you shared on um, the Asia Tech podcast was that you said uh, the median interaction of an ad went down. Uh, you shared it on on NextWeb. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, of Correct. Went down like from median of ten to eight, but it goes. Yeah. It it varies around different countries. And I was just looking at it for I mean Kuala Lumpur. Uh, Kuala Lumpur's interaction median is sixteen. <laughs> it's crazy, right? It varies around the uh, countries in the region. Um, it does. And um, just just to get back to it, I recently I told you about my barber shop. I I actually told my barber shop, "All right, bro, you have a set amount of money. I would say stop advertising on Facebook. 
because that's a pure pure uh, pay pay to play uh, area. It's the uh, the effect the effectiveness part. I said uh, put your advertising to Instagram because uh, even though if you don't get like sales straight away, you get the community building because that's still organic. So if you grow your followers or you grow uh, and then you put your Instagram stories out, that's still organic reach, unlike Facebook, which is almost like pay to get anything now on Facebook. So mm. any, any thoughts on the, the uh, decline of the interaction with Facebook ads, even though it's quite high here in Kuala Lumpur? Any thoughts on? Uh, lots of thoughts on. But yeah, unfortunately, yeah. rent along, rent along. Zero data to back any of those thoughts up, which is massively frustrating me. Yeah. Um, so there may be all sorts of fairly straightforward reasons for this. It may simply be that there are a, a whole group of people that have just come onto Facebook for the first time and they're not used to clicking on ads. Something yeah. as straightforward as that. So I'm not going to go deep into my hypotheses of why. I think it's just something that we need to be very closely tracking over the next few weeks and months as marketers is looking at those numbers and seeing whether they go up or down. Ultimately, if people are not clicking on ads on Facebook, it may simply be because more marketers are using reach targeting instead of click targeting. So you can still achieve objectives on Facebook without anybody clicking on an ad, right? Yeah. If you just, if the video auto plays and I watch it, nobody's clicked anything, but I've still achieved my objective. If all I wanted was for somebody to watch the video. So yeah. let's not, Let's not make strong assumptions that this is the death of Facebook advertising. That's not what the data says. The data simply says people aren't clicking. That means that we need to adjust our strategies, perhaps. It may also be that when we produce the Q4 report in a couple of months, that the numbers go back up again. It may just be a temporary thing. Something as simple as the heat waves that the people in Europe are experiencing at the moment means they're spending more time outside, bright sunlight, difficult to see your screen, spending less time on Facebook. Something as simple as that. I know it sounds crazy, but you know, these things have an impact. Do you know that, anecdotally, one of the biggest influences on the sales of Coca-Cola is the weather, right? So, yeah. you know, Coke can invest huge amounts of advertising, but if the weather's rubbish, they sell less Coke, right? So something as simple as that can impact all sorts of different activities. It's not just, a lot of people like to read too much into changes in data. You'll notice that in the reports that I produce, so in those stat shots and the global reports, very, very few, in fact, if any, analyses of those data, right? So I simply produce the numbers yeah. and people can interpret them as they see fit. Now I'll share my analyses separately in places like the next web, but yeah. the reports are there simply to give you a basis as a marketer or as an agency of seeing how the data changes over time. It's the changes that matter. It's not the individual numbers that matter. It's the evolution of those numbers over time. And it's the fact that they went down from 10 to eight, those median clicks on adverts of the typical Facebook user around the world dropping from 10 to eight. Yeah. A 20% drop is it's significant. When you multiply that by 2 billion users, that, that's a lot of clicks that have vanished, yeah. that are no longer there. But I think it's, there's a lot more to Facebook advertising than just clicks. Now, whether people should be on Facebook or Instagram or whatever else it is, this is another one of those fundamentally flawed questions. It's like me coming to you and saying, what will make me happy? Until you know what makes me happy, you can't tell me what will make me happy. And I know that that's a chicken and egg question yeah. but that is the really important thing that marketers need to realize if i'm a b2b brand there's a greater chance of me getting success on linkedin than there is on me on instagram but that's not true of all b2b brands there are many b2b brands that should be investing in instagram for example but what they do on those channels and how frequently they use those channels and how they target 
and what content they post, all of these dependencies. And I think this is the bit that, that worries me most about digital marketing is that it's the equivalent of a miracle diet pill. It's being sold by far too many agencies as buy a Facebook ad and you will become a billionaire. And it's like, that's bullshit. This is absolute nonsense. Now, yeah. you know, I've used Facebook advertising to build many businesses of my own included where I can absolutely confirm that if you spend your money in certain ways, you will see great returns on that investment. But I've also seen brands just waste thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, maybe sometimes even millions of dollars in just dreadful, dreadful content. You know, they've done great targeting, but the ads that they're showing me are shit. And it's like <laughs> no amount of polishing a shit is going to change it. They just take that TV ad and put it on Facebook most of the time. If the TV yeah. ad is great and it's suitable for the context in which I see it, that's yeah. okay. But yeah. you cannot assume that because you've created... And the other thing is, was the TV ad any good in the first place? I mean, the number of TV ads that were wrong for TVs. I mean, you, you remember this from the days when we used to watch TV because now we only watch Netflix and there's no advertising on Netflix, right? This is another big... Sorry, I'm going to go off on another rant here, but this is another slight danger is that the people in advertising agencies, whether you're in New York or in Nepal, the vast majority of people that work in advertising agencies live in a very small bubble that is incredibly similar wherever you are in the world. We watch the same shows on the same platforms. We refer back to the same select few ads that won at Cannes as our benchmark of success. And somehow we think that the ads that won, which were for a shampoo brand in Brazil, is somehow going to be relevant for a car brand in Tokyo. And it's like, I'm really sorry. I don't buy into that. There is great creativity, and we applaud it as a really creative piece of marketing. But that's more appreciating an emotional piece of content than it is about something that delivers great effectiveness for the brand. I don't dispute that in that particular example, the shampoo brand in Brazil delivered great results for the brand in Brazil. But it's very difficult to then translate that to another brand elsewhere. I'm sort of mixing up all sorts of thoughts here and not delivering you anything concrete, am I? Yeah, but, it's good. It's good. So my, my key takeaway is here. You cannot take a learning from one brand in one part of the world and automatically assume it's going to work somewhere else in a different category. The other thing is just being on Facebook or any other platform isn't the answer. It's finding context and relevance and delivering that. So right message, right people, right place, right time is almost a massive cliche in the industry. And yet we now have tools like programmatic, like social media targeting that allow us to not only understand what that message should be. If we're social listening, we know what people think today and what, they, what we want them to think differently. Yeah. Right? So let me dig into that a little bit more deeply and I'll come back to the other three. So, sorry, you can, you can tell my mind's a bit. Yeah, messy, yeah. Right? it's good. It's good. I'm, I'm like so, this. It's good. Right message. All advertising, in fact, almost all marketing, but especially advertising, its core purpose is to change people's thoughts and emotions from what they are today to what we want them to be in the future. So that could be reversing something or it could be reinforcing something. So you might think that this brand is not suitable for cool kids in their 20s and I want you to think that this brand is suitable for cool kids in their 20s. Something as dead straightforward as that. Your advertising, your marketing, all your activities need to deliver a message that changes it from A to B, right? At its absolute simplest, that's what advertising is designed to do. It's not designed to get your film on TV. It's not designed to deliver reach of 8 million. It's not X, Y. None of that matters unless you are changing thoughts and attitudes and emotions from what they are today to what you want them to be. That's all that matters. That's the only thing we need to be measuring. Okay? All of these 
nonsense things about how much reach you got. If you, if, so this video is going to go out to, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people on LinkedIn, right? If I suddenly start speaking to you in a different language, all of a sudden I'm losing the audience that doesn't speak that language. That's the problem. Now, whether your language is a specific language or an emotional language, if people don't relate, you're losing them. So right message, understanding what people care about, what they think today, and delivering what you want them to think related to what they care about tomorrow. Did straightforward, yeah. right message, right place. So my, um, the analogy I'll always use with my clients here is when you want to ask your boss for a pay rise, do you do it in the pub on a Friday night when your boss is drunk? You know, she's had a few too many drinks. She turns around to you. She starts talking about how pleased she is with your work. Do you ask her for a pay rise then? Not the right time, not the right place, right? Monday morning when you're in the office, probably a better time. That's not to say you shouldn't do it. Sometimes a boss will be more amenable to it. Outside yeah. the night on the pub. So you've got to know your audience, right? So yeah. right place, right time. Message that matters. And sometimes you realize that actually it's neither Facebook or Instagram. It's Pinterest. Because yeah. I want to sell them some furniture and that's where this particular audience goes to look for inspiration for decorating their home. Now, yeah. it may be a very niche, small audience and it may just be one very small part of their life. But if you know your audience, if you spend time listening and tracking what they care about, you'll know where those things are. So it's not about are you going to be on channel X or Y. It's right message, right people, right place, right, right time. So great I don't stuff, know why, I don't why we have to complicate it, right? Yeah, it yeah, it's great. Very good, very good stuff. And uh, my, my experience as a practitioner when it comes to Facebook advertising, I think you, that's, that's where a lot of insights come in. If you don't practice it, you get a lot of data, you don't know like, um, what it means. Uh, one of the things you said uh, in one of the interviews is that you said like Asia is largely a mobile first. Um, area a community so i have had lots of success running facebook advertising in malaysia and sometimes in singapore but a lot of success in indonesia because i think the cost mm. ad price and the interaction is very high in indonesia it's because i think one of the reasons is because they are mobile first mobile first yep. community they they went past the economic uh economic requirements to get a desktop to stick straight away you can find the same um behaviors in South Asia as well where people in Bangladesh yeah. or India are mobile first. That's why like engagement on Facebook advertising and ads is very, very high. Uh, any thoughts yeah. on that? Yes, I think we, we probably need to stop talking about the idea of mobile first because the vast majority of, in fact, I think pretty much everybody in the world now is mobile first when it comes to activities as a consumer I think right. anyone, anyone below the age of 20 is mobile first. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Mobile first. <laughs> and, you know, I still use a desktop for work every day simply because I can't quite run PowerPoint on this yet. Mm. You know, and sadly, sadly, most of yeah. my life is still in PowerPoint. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at the way that people shop these days, so let's take e-commerce as an example, and there's data for this in the report that, um, we just published, looking at how people shop on mobile versus how they shop on desktop, they often combine the activities and they do slightly different bits. So, you know, it might be that if you're going to be doing a big shop like your weekly groceries, you might want to do that. I don't know. It might be on the sofa with a tablet instead of a phone or with your desktop, for example. So I think understanding the context in which people are shopping is really important. So there are things like, you know, I might just earlier today, I, I was putting on my shoes and I realized that they were damaged. I was like, I need a replacement pair of 
this particular pair of sneakers. So I got into the taxi just, you know, because I put my shoes on, left the house, got into a taxi and I started looking for a pair of sneakers. Now, if I'd found them, I probably would have just bought them straight away and had them delivered. But when I'm looking for a piece of kit for my, my music studio, for example, I might sit down and spend a couple of hours researching it and I might do it on a big, you know, on the computer that I actually use for my music stuff. So everything is going to come back to this builds on the conversation we were just having, right place, right time, right? Comes back to context and relevance to all that kind of stuff. So the advertising that we produce and that we then deliver to our audience needs to be sort of in the context of what that journey looks like. Are you the kind of brand that is looking to just build awareness or to build sort of brand recognition over time, in which case you can do that across multiple devices over time. If you are a brand that is looking to drive conversion right now, you're going to need to understand the context in which people are likely to convert. I'm not going to buy a car straight from an Instagram ad unless I already know way loads more stuff from previous interactions, right? It's very unlikely that I'll see an advert for a nice new car today and I'll click on an ad and I'll go ahead and get my credit card out and drop in Singapore a hundred grand on a car, right? It's just not the way that, yet, that's not the way that our brains work. Whereas if you offered me one for one on, so grab the the ride hailing people um, for those listening outside of Southeast Asia. So grab is a sort of, it's a bit like Uber for people that don't know. Um, They're doing a massive promotion at the moment for delivery of durians in Singapore. I'm guessing they're probably doing something similar in um, KL for you guys as well. But it's like, you know, special discounts for Singapore National Day, which is this week. And there's a very good chance I'm going to click on that ad that pops up and I'm going to do it right now because it's a limited time offer and it's, you know, right context. So I think we've got to stop as marketers starting with the delivery channel and we've got to start with what we're delivering and then choose based on that. It is harder work, but the thing is that if we're not doing that, then we're going to end up wasting vast amounts of resource and effort just pushing stuff out that is suboptimal. You know, at the moment, we're we're sort of we're going to the casino and we're gambling on a roulette table, hoping that we're going to get decent returns. When what we could be doing is just taking the money into the bank now. Well, the thing about roulette tables, right, is that every once in a blue moon, you're going to get amazing returns and everybody thinks that's staggering. That's winning at can, right? So that's your roulette table there. What you know, though, if you're a sensible, rational person, you know that putting that money in an investment product in the longer term is a far surer way of getting good ROI. It's not as sexy. When you tell your boss you've done it, they might be like, okay. And nobody is going to celebrate you with drinks because you bought an investment product. But in the longer term, you've got better returns on those investments. Either of those, depending on what kind of person you are, make your choices, take your pick. But longer term, yeah, more money. (laughs) That's the answer. Go with the the less sexy but more dependable. That would be my top tip. You talk I deviated about, from the question. Yeah, you talk about, I'm going to deviate as well. So you talk about Khan, and, and I, I also like criticized Khan previously uh, because I, I used to work in advertising in one of the big agencies in Singapore. <laughs> and, uh, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, Khan is a bad thing. I'm just saying that the danger is that we all look at those things that win at Khan and try and emulate them for everything that we do. It's like that's, that's not how this industry works. Yeah, yeah. Every now and again, we need that. Yeah. So one of the really important things to remember is that winning at Cannes is probably one of the greatest um, ways of attracting talent to your agency. So as an HR advert, winning at Cannes is an essential part of building a strong agency. So I totally get that sometimes those investments are necessary. 
But it's not the only, again, healthy, balanced diet is the way for doing marketing, right? You need multiple different things. You can't bank everything on that one gamble on the roulette table. Yeah. My, my problem with Khan is every time someone wins an award, like, it's not about how many marketing effectiveness it's got. Like, like oh, everyone in Brazil used the same shampoo. It's always like, this has contributed to the social change. This has contributed. It's a very intangible things that uh, you know what's for. I'm like, seriously, like, yeah, like, like, it's not lot of like, is it a marketing festival? That's why like people pull out it. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's not even about creative. It's not like social change. <laughs> I'm like, so the, it's now supposed to be the festival of creativity, which is actually, it's a pretty decent description of it because we are celebrating the best in creativity, but yeah. I'm gravely concerned that we see our jobs as being, solely creative and not creative with purpose. And I think the fact that, so my friend Tom Ollerton, who's one of those marketing brains that, you know, you spend half an hour with him and you're like, you learn so much. So Tom was saying recently that, isn't it fascinating that advertising is probably one of the only industries in the world where we have awards that are separate, that are dedicated to the effectiveness of our product. Can you imagine that in the automotive category, if we had an effectiveness? This car got the passenger from A to B without killing them, yay! So it's like, oh my God, really? But that's effectively what we do with our effectiveness awards in advertising. It's like, it did what it was supposed to do. And it's like, okay, surely this is the basic ticket for entry for every advertising campaign ever. And yet it's not, because we think too much in advertising that our job is to make movies. No, 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 no. That's not what the client's paying us for. That may be what we want to do, but the reality is somebody else is paying us to help them get returns on their investment. And sadly, a lot of the time, like I said, it's not the sexy shit that wins yeah. out of the ROI awards. It may win at can, but we can't do that. Cannot, can, cannot. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know, you, you've got to spend more time on the, the proven stuff. Now, does more creative work deliver better effectiveness is the big argument. And there is plenty of evidence to prove that creative stuff delivered efficiency, efficiently, so creative, when it's efficient and effectiveness, yeah. efficient and effective, is double impact, right? But the danger is if we're only focusing on one and not the other, yeah. but I keep repeating myself, don't I? It comes back to that balance thing. It's not just creativity. So we need creative, that is effective as well, in the effectiveness side of it. If we're not challenging ourselves on both sides, then we are wasting our clients' money as advertisers. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you first-person experience that you said, um, I used to work with big advertising agencies and they, they aspire to make movies all the time. And Cannes is the perfect example. It's sort of, they have, you have the Cannes Film Festival, which is a legit movie one. And then you have the advertising one, which is right. sort of a replica, replica of that. So, right. Uh, it's like, I think- yeah. It, it, it's, it's fine. I, I, I totally understand the rationale for creativity and I've seen the impact of that in many of the activities that I've done. The more creative stuff creates greater relevance because it fits one of those, you know, when you remember when I was talking about the four different kinds of value, information, entertainment. Yeah. So where you've got sort of really creative activities that deliver entertainment or deliver inspiration and education, those deliver greater amounts of audience value if they're done sort of correctly. But where you're doing Creative for creative sake without relevance, that's where you end up wasting huge amounts of money. So I'm not saying don't do creative stuff. I'm simply saying we've got to do it with the recognition that we're yeah. trying to deliver a result for our clients as well. This is all like such basic stuff, and yet we still seem to be having these conversations. It's like, what's wrong with us? Yeah. 
Yeah, good Sorry. stuff. Good stuff. Finally, someone who gets me. I I can't talk about this to anyone who doesn't get it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I actively discourage, to be honest, I actively discourage people who want to join the advertising agency, like from a fresh graduate. I, oh, I, 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 it's a bit radical, but that's, that's what I do. But anyway, we don't talk, we don't talk about that. So, you know, global, <laughs> your global digital stat chart, um, ah. um, you have lots of stats on LinkedIn, like the users of LinkedIn, uh, but, uh, yeah. Uh, what I find about LinkedIn uh, is the adoption in Southeast Asia is not that high yet. Not yet, not yet high in Colombor, quite high in Singapore. Um, um, I think uh, it's doing relatively well. I think yeah. it's, it, it, it comes back to that relevance to a particular audience. I think yeah. if you look broadly across Southeast Asia, I may be making broad generalizations here, so apologies to anybody that kind of yeah. listens says it's nonsense but my sense is that the people that get the greatest value out of linkedin are people that are involved in service industries when i say service industries you may work for a manufacturing company but you work in hr which is the service yeah. bit of yeah. you know so people that are in any kind of service activity yeah. will get greater value out of linkedin because it's about human relationships right that's where yeah. services fit so people like you and i that are selling services yeah on linkedin find it very effective and i think you'll find that across an awful lot of um, developing nations, it's not, you know, the, the, the services part of the economy is not as developed as it would be in, say, the US or wherever else. So the stronger the services component of the broader economy, the more likely you are to see more people active on LinkedIn on a regular basis. That's oh. a generalization, but that's my read of the data. I see. I see. Um, like Facebook's penetration uh, in Indonesia and Vietnam, like countries and Thailand, is very high. Uh, the yes. reason I believe is because they have the localized version. For example, like they have Thai uh, in Bahasa version for for Indonesia. And ac actually, LinkedIn is one of the few social networks in China. Yes, Facebook is yes. not. It's in China. So I I. I really hope it grows in China and you see like some people with like Chinese character names on their LinkedIn profile yeah. already. And, um, but what I feel that needs uh, LinkedIn for LinkedIn to grow is for the localization to happen, whether it's a different language or uh, maybe different context. I, I don't know. Any thoughts? Any thought it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Cause I've not really, I've not really spoken to anybody about whether they find the, the interface yeah. a challenge. I think, it's quite it interesting, is it? a challenge. It is. I'm guessing like, that... Like not, not many people know that to look at um, Simon Kemp's post, I have to go to your profile and click on post. It's not a Facebook yeah. thing. You know, it's not like I click no. on profile. So you, it's very tedious to get to all your posts. And you go there and there's activity and post. And you have to click on post again. So yeah. that's not very native for people who are not native English speakers, you know, like... No, absolutely. China so I think it's interesting because most of the people that I deal with have discovered me through the stuff that I post on social media, which predominantly is LinkedIn or Twitter. Yeah. And you know, the majority of my, I suppose, my valuable leads at the moment are coming through LinkedIn. So I don't really get the chance to speak to people who aren't on LinkedIn. That's really interesting. I'm going to have to go and like suddenly spend more time with, you know, I was talking about those bubbles of advertising people that watch the same. Yeah, that. that's my yeah. danger there. I end up in a, a self-fulfilling cycle. But having said that, I mean, you know, 560 million registered users, roughly 300 million people visiting linkedin.com every month. And we're talking about a very sizable and a very valuable audience. And I think that's what's quite interesting is that if you look at the 
the kinds of people that use LinkedIn and what they use it for compared to the kinds of people that use Facebook and what they use it for. Now, I use both. But if you are a, suppose you're an accounting firm that wants to sell me accounting services, you yeah. doing that on LinkedIn is far more likely to have um, situational relevance than you trying to sell me the same services on Facebook, which I'll check in the evening when the show that I'm watching gets to that little dull moment and I'm so massively impatient that I can't wait so I check something <laughs> while I'm waiting for the stuff on the TV to get exciting again. Yeah. So, you know, platform versus context. This is something that media agencies have been battling with for forever because the most efficient way of planning media is just delivery to eyeballs, whereas the most effective way of planning is context. And I think that, that's the bit is that LinkedIn delivers a contextual relevance which is so valuable because you know, we're talking about a B2B customer who is probably looking for either a way to develop their own career or yeah. a way to succeed in the one that they're already in. Those are you know, they're high stakes needs yeah. and things that people invest emotion and time and effort into building. So the fact that LinkedIn is a slightly smaller audience is balanced out by the fact that it's an incredibly valuable audience. So you know, if you're selling the kinds of services that are relevant to people on LinkedIn, then is I find it a massively misunderstood part of the mix. So it's interesting. I was, I was speaking to um, a marketer who's a, a luxury watch brand recently. Yeah. And they were saying that they tried buying ads on LinkedIn, but it hadn't quite worked the way that they'd expected. You know, they got, they got good reach of a certain kind of audience, yeah. but they couldn't see that it had translated into sales. And I'm like, see, the thing is, right, the thing about a luxury watch is that if I'm going to spend... I don't personally, but if I'm going to spend 10 grand on a Rolex, that's not, you know, it's not like me buying shampoo. It's like, Ooh, I need a new watch. I'll go out and buy one this afternoon. It's kind of like, it's a very emotional purchase. And you know, if you think about the context of buying a luxury watch in the context of LinkedIn, it, it's, it's me making a statement about who I am and that I'm successful and all that kind of stuff. Like I said, I don't buy these things, but you know, if you think about the psychology yeah. of this kind of stuff. And I think it's really important there that you don't use the same kind of luxury advertising that you might use in a magazine like, I don't know, August Man or GQ or whatever else it might be where you would advertise, you know, big glossy stuff. You want to be giving a slightly different set of messaging in LinkedIn. Do you want to be portraying a luxury image or do you want to be portraying a success image? They may be very closely related, but it comes back to that contextual relevance piece of don't take your TV ad and stick it on, link, um, on Facebook. In the same way, don't take your luxury ad and stick it on LinkedIn. You know, mm -hmm. Think about, yes, this is the right kind of audience. These are wealthy, successful folks that are wanting, you know, if you're, it's a bit of a cliche, but you know, the, the successful salesperson that wants to turn up and show their glamorous Rolex makes a statement about who they are and it's a conversation start or whatever else it may be. But think about where that exists in their world. What kind of statement are they going to be thinking about that's most relevant to a LinkedIn world? And that's quite different to a luxury magazine world. So coming back to the same points again and again, which is you know, the funny thing. You end up repeating this stuff because most marketing is just most straightforward common sense. There's only about three things you need to know. What does your audience want? How can you give it to them? And how can you make a profit out of doing it? I and mean, that's yeah, marketing yeah. in a nutshell, right? So LinkedIn, yeah, sorry. <laughs> your question yeah. was, should people yeah. be on LinkedIn? Yes, I think I, there's all sorts of opportunities there. But I'll, I'll, let, I'll share with you my experience because there are not many video LinkedIn creators and I'm one of them in Malaysia. There are about three or four here. So I, I'll say, I always say I'm like top two because there are like four people here anyway. But I know because when I post a video, I get a lot of traction in New York. Seriously, I get like hundreds, yeah. 200s. I get some people living in Jakarta. But I know there are certain countries where it's completely 
like Thailand, for example, you cannot really find quite many people on Thai, uh, in, link, on, in LinkedIn on, from Thailand and Vietnam, countries like that, but many from Singapore and a, a great number from Indonesia. Um, so I'll, I'll, and, and if you talk about the service industry, yes, they, these countries have their own service centers. They are accountants, they are marketing people in all these countries. Correct. But for some reason, the penetration is just not there yet. Maybe it's language, maybe. So I think a lot of what you see on LinkedIn depends on the network you've already built. And I find this fascinating is that yeah. sometimes I'll connect with just one person and it will be like one of those magic doors and it opens up. And <laughs> so you know how on LinkedIn they've got these things where it's like people you may know. And it gives you yeah, suggestions yeah, yeah. of people who might connect. Second connections. Second connections. Right. Yeah. And that's the magic. It's sometimes you just connect with one person. So this has happened to me recently. I, I spend a lot of time building my network on LinkedIn. It's like a, it's a dirty secret, but you know, you're inviting all of these people because you want to see what content. Are you posting. a premium account? Are you a premium? Yeah, you are. I'm not actually. Don't tell LinkedIn that. <laughs> they know. It's the, golden, like it's, it's the golden, link, golden logo on, 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 on. It, it's not me because... I'm Scottish. We're just incredibly tight. I'm going to be racist against myself here. But no, I think I let, let's not get into that because it's a can of worms. I yeah. love LinkedIn, so I don't want them to get disappointed. Yeah. Looking at the, the people you may know things. So, you know, I'll, I'll go in there usually every couple of days and I'll actively invite people that I think we could share value with each yeah. other. Yeah, so, me too. Me too. You've, got, you've got those people that just try and build their numbers yeah, that's going to destroy the platform for you because if you've got people that are in industries that have got nothing to do with you, you know, you might occasionally get some interesting stuff. But for me, understanding the latest developments in die cutting manufacturing technology, I'm a bit like, it's not going to help me day to day. Um, so, you know, I, I want to cultivate a network which is in some way related to the kind of work that I do. Yeah. So most recently I've been connecting with an awful lot of people at consultancies that are looking at the future of uh, medical equipment because I'm fascinated about the changes in interfaces for um, technology. So I want to understand neuroscience because from my perspective, that's the future of, instead of looking at screens, we're going to have technologies that work direct with our brains. The only way I'm really going to understand that is by knowing the latest cutting edge technology. And that's the kind of stuff that these people are sharing on LinkedIn, right? So my feed is full of all sorts of very bizarre stuff that I'm carefully cultivating. But every now and again, I'll connect with one person and I'll notice that the mix of people in the people you may know section on LinkedIn suddenly changes. So you were saying you don't see many people on there from, from Thailand. Thailand or Vietnam. Just over the last few days, I've suddenly seen huge numbers of people in Thailand in my oh. people you may know. Okay. So, you know, you, you can check the latest data in our report if you want to know how many registered users there are in each of those locations. You're right. I mean, proportionate to overall population, they, these countries don't have as high penetration compared to somewhere like the US, for example. Yeah. But having said that, and I don't mean this with any sense of judgment, so this is not saying that people that aren't on LinkedIn are in any way inferior, but higher value audiences, if you are a services individual, are the ones that will be on LinkedIn. So I don't want to be reaching 100% of the Thai audience. I want to be reaching that fraction of a tiny fraction of a percent of the audience that's interested in buying my services and yeah. maybe a slightly broader audience that will influence them. 
So, you know, there may only be a few million people on there out of a, a country of 65, 70 million people. Yeah. But if they're the, the few people that I care about, then that's great. And I think you know, what's really interesting is we talked about podcasting just before we started recording this particular show. And you were saying that you've been tuning into the stuff that I've been doing with Graham on the uh, Asia Tech podcast. Graham and I talk regularly about the number of listeners that we get to our shows. Now, the reports that I write and I publish on SlideShare, I'll get six, seven million viewers of those a year. And then we'll put out a podcast and we'll get a few hundred people listening. And, you know, from a statistics perspective, I'm kind of like, oh, it's not, it's not as good numbers. And yet the funny thing is that I'll probably get the same number of inquiries out of a show on the Asia Tech podcast that gets a couple of hundred listeners as I will from a report that I put out that gets a couple of hundred thousand viewers. Yeah. So from my perspective, the size of the audience is not representative of the value that you get from those activities as long as you've carefully thought about your audience. Now, it's not an either-or question. This is the beauty. Balance, diet, like I keep saying, right? Yeah. You can do both. And the funny thing is that you can take the report that you publish and then you can talk about it with people like Bob Lowe on his video thing for LinkedIn. And you can say, here's some stuff that isn't in the report and I can translate it into deeper value. Not yeah. as many people are going to watch this interview as are going to read the reports because not everybody understands English so they can understand you and I talking, but they can get the numbers from the report, for example. Yeah. So, you know, think about, think about that. It's don't get distracted by the size of the audience. Get get more into the value of the audience based on the people you want to reach and what you want to reach them with. So again, right, right yeah, message, yeah. right people, right place, right time. Yeah, like sound like a stuck record yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we go, uh, you said podcasting, right? Uh, mm. I talked to Graham about this and I, I uploaded some of my interviews into YouTube, maybe not many views, but I told him that, because I know myself, it's from observation that not many Asians listen to podcasts natively, like, you know, listening to the podcast. This is not true. Not true. This is a misconception. The data <laughs> says Asians listen to more podcasts than Europeans, would you believe? Oh, is it, uh, on what platform? Like, uh, I'm going to have to double check that. I might have got yeah, that yeah, stat yeah. wrong. But, but I've not um, seen anyone on iTunes in, or ah, no, Google. Nah, this is a really, really important point. Yeah. iTunes is a very, very difficult place to get random listens. The only yeah. way you're going to succeed with a podcast on iTunes is by growing your subscribers. And that takes huge amounts of time and effort. Yeah. That time and effort is well justified if you're going to do this long term. Yeah. So if you're going to do this for two, three years minimum, brilliant. Right? <laughs> but if you want to publish stuff today and get big traction, you're going to need to spread it out across all sorts of different platforms. Yeah. And you know, I, I think it's, it's interesting that we look at podcasting very differently to the way that we look at publishing a report, for example. So when I publish a report, I put it on SlideShare, I'll take an image out and I put it on a blog, I put it on Twitter, I put it on LinkedIn, everywhere, right? It's dandelion seeds. I'm just throwing this stuff out there and seeing what sticks. Whereas with a podcast, it's like, ooh, you deliberate for ages about what's the best hosting and publishing place. It's like, just yeah. get it out to as many people as possible. And I think, you know, it was really interesting you saying you'll publish it on YouTube and you'll get not many viewers. So yeah. I had a similar experience. So I started doing a series of videos last year and I published them on YouTube and they got a few thousand views. Yeah. Published the same exact video on LinkedIn and it got tens of thousands of views. And it's like, this is really interesting because the delivery mechanism on LinkedIn, because I'm, you know, because I spent so much time building my, my network on LinkedIn, I've got a built in audience. And so it goes out there. Whereas on YouTube, because I'm starting from scratch and I've got zero followers, you know, you've got to start so you, you really got to think the about it. People on YouTube are yeah. there for tech videos. Anyway, talk about contacts. 
Yeah, and it's that important thing. If you've yeah. got to build your audience and take them to different places at different times. And I think it's very easy to get distracted by trying to measure different content with the same metrics as you used previously. Podcasting is a niche audience, but it's a high-value audience. So it's similar to that thing I was saying about LinkedIn. You're not going to get the same number of people listening to a podcast as you are seeing your image post on Twitter. But having said that, the people that take time to sit down and listen to the, oh, we've done an hour and a half so far on this yeah. particular interview. Right? But you know, the people that are going to take an hour and a half to listen to what you say are deeply involved and probably very interested in the topic. If you can demonstrate that you're contributing value across an hour and a half in a conversation like this or a podcast, chances are that a much greater proportion of that audience is going to convert compared to the tens of thousands of people that saw that single image on Twitter as they were scrolling quickly through their feed. So don't confuse absolute numbers with, you know, the, the, the relative value of those numbers. Cool. 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 Simon, last, last question, because we've been on this for a while now. We have. So so you've done, you've done marketing across the world, uh, obviously. Um, what, uh, what is the uniqueness of marketing in Asia? What's the, like social cultural differences than you market in Asia. Is it different in a way? So you've sort of given me the answer and the question at the same time there. So yeah, yeah. marketing marketing is the same everywhere you are in the world in terms of the basic process. Understand yeah. what people want, understand how you can deliver it to them and achieve what you care about. So those three things. So my, my Venn diagram that we started talking about at the beginning, what you want as a brand or as a person, what your audience wants, the overlap. That's marketing. Having said that, what people want is going to change even between, you know, you and I live in similar parts of the world, but we're very different, even though we work in very similar industries and have similar interests, right? This is the essential thing. So the fundamental process is the same anywhere you go. The way that you implement that process and the kinds of people that you're dealing with will change every minute of every day, even if it's the same person. What I want today is different to what I wanted yesterday. And if you are a sophisticated marketer and you can track that, maybe not quite to that level of day-to-day changes, but if you can track that, you are much better placed to succeed. So the very, very basics stay exactly the same, but you want to be as curious as you can be to understand culture, individual motivations, relevance, like all these things become a massive sort of people-watching, curious psychologist. Implement that process, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you're interested in your audience, you're much more likely to succeed. So... Yeah, don't, don't get distracted by what people tell you. Marketing is always the same, but the audience changes each time. All right. Thanks, Simon. It's been a great no I really, really enjoyed this. Uh, so much insight and so much like, deep information. So thank you so much, Simon. No worries. Thanks for having me, Bob. Good to speak yeah. to you. Yeah. Cheers.